Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Mayonaka Hour. I am Van Pogam, host of the podcast, and I'm here today with DJ Greg Hignite of Tune In Tokyo in LA. Greg, do you want to say hi? Hi, everyone. So excited to be with you here tonight. We're so excited to have you, Greg. I know you've been doing so so many great things in LA with Tune In Tokyo, especially. I've been dying to get out there and and experience your party. You do some of the coolest events that are uh, kind of focused around idol, shokayo, and city pop now, and a lot of the illustrations you have on Instagram, and you put a lot of effort into that, and it, and it really shows, and uh, I really appreciate what you do, and I, I can't wait to be able to meet you and, and hang out with you guys at Tune in Tokyo. Thank you. I'll look forward to that day. Last episode, I was talking to Rocket Brown, and you know, you came up several times, uh, <laughs> And I, I did want to make a note that, you know, I, I would love to play out there someday as a guest for Tune In Tokyo because I've never been to L.A., uh, so it's always been something I've wanted to do, and, and it would be really significant if I could play with you guys. So, but yeah, so, so thank you so much for being on the show. Um, so today, our topic is Momoko Kikuchi, which is the, uh, I call her the peach of City Pop because she's she's a peach in every way. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure you know of her, right? Absolutely. Yeah, she's quite the artist. Uh, she has a really interesting history. She has so much talent, and she started at such a young age. Uh, it's, it's amazing to me, uh, and it really shows today because her records are finding this kind of revitalization um, in the West, especially with younger people. Her music is really resonating with a lot of people in the West. I mean, her albums are getting repressed uh, Adventure specifically got repressed by Light in the Attic, I think. Or did you did you pick that one up? That was a must-get. Yeah, it's a beautiful re-release, and I think it really is a great way to reintroduce her to modern listeners. Oh, definitely. Did you get the purple variant? I did. Oh, so lucky. I wasn't able to get that. I have a, I have an original, though. I have the original. Uh, and, and, you know, mine came with an OB strip, so, yeah, I, I really, I really love it. Uh, I play it often, though, so I worry about uh, it degrading because of how many times I play Mystical Composer. It's absurd. Uh, you know, and anytime I DJ <laughs> somewhere, I have to play that, you know. Do you play her records often at Tune in Tokyo at your events? Uh, we do. She's in heavy rotation in our sets. There's a few standards there and a lot of deep cuts, and the crowd always responds well to her. They certainly know who she is. Oh, yeah. I mean, and with, with good reason. She has such a unique voice, and... um. It's very, uh, I'm going to say angelic. She has such a whispery, very unique voice about her. Uh, and she she knows how to use it right. And she has a personality that kind of meshes well with it. Like The person behind the voice, it's, it, it all makes sense to me. And it, it works so well. And maybe that's the reason why she's had the career she's had. Uh, to, when, when did you first hear her? Like, how did you, because I know you've been doing Tune in Tokyo for a while, and you've been into Japanese music way before I was. I think that she was one of those artists who was ubiquitous uh, with the 80s, and so as I was catching on to other idols of that era, like uh, Nakamori, Akina, Matsuda Seiko, uh, Kikuchi Momoko was right along with them. And I, I think there's two stages to my understanding of her. I think, like everyone in Japan, I saw her as an idol first. And then as I 
began to look at the music more closely as a DJ, uh, I started to see that there was a lot going on there. And, and that sort of began my second fandom of her, I guess you could say. That is awesome. Um, so Tune in Tokyo, when did this start? Uh, I know you've been doing it for quite some time. I, I started myself in 2016, but I know you started way before that. Can you give me some insight in, in what made you start Tune in Tokyo and, and start doing a Japanese music from that era in general? So around 2007, uh, my... A good friend and business partner, Del Martin, had a global pop night underway called International Pop Conspiracy. And so we were working with DJs from different global formats. So we were doing American pop, French, Brit pop, and we were also doing J-pop and ultimately K-pop too. And uh, at, at a certain point, we were like, we really want to do something that's Japanese focused. Nobody is, is doing any Japanese music in the club. Uh, it was like a dedicated night at all, and that's where Tune in Tokyo was born. And so we held our first Tune in Tokyo event in 2008. Uh, it was ostensibly just a little club party. We just wanted to throw on some music and, and invite some friends, and it kind of started there. Uh, and in the years that followed, uh, we went from being DJ promoters to also being live event producers as well. So we started bringing in bands, uh, and our activities kind of diversified over the years from there. That is, that's incredible. Yeah, I've seen a lot of pictures on Instagram of you with, with a lot of uh, what, what seems like famous uh, you know, Japanese and just uh, Asian artists in general. And so these events that you've been throwing, um, are they widely known in, in, in Asia? Or uh, how would you say you're being uh, received by the uh, Asian community? I would say that first and foremost, we're a SoCal event. We're definitely an LA event, and our core crowd has always come from Los Angeles and the outlying areas. Uh, we get a lot of people who come in from the, the suburbs like Orange County and the Valley and places like that. Uh, at the same time that we were hustling as club promoters, I was also starting to build our business as uh, booking consultants and, and event producers. And that's where we started laying down some connections with Japan and either creating an opportunity uh, for artists from Japan to perform at our events or helping to facilitate appearances in the U.S. at other things like conventions and festivals. Oh, wow. That's, that's quite the endeavor. And you've been so, so, so successful at it. It's, it's, it's marvelous. I, I can't commend you enough on, on your efforts. Um, and it's, it's, it's noticed a lot of people know of you in the Japanese community and the uh, the J-pop community in general too. So you've been you've been making waves, and um, it's only growing what you're doing. Because I know, did you did you start with the same DJs you had now, or or did you just add on people throughout the years? We've gone through some different lineups over the years. Uh, at this time, there's one of our original DJs uh, still with me in the crew. Uh, everyone else now who's active is is completely different. We've gone through about three or four generations, but we always operated as a DJ collective. Uh, we always had a certain number of people that were part of our group. We all tried to promote them equally and, and make sure that everyone had an opportunity behind the decks. And everyone in a collective kind of has different uh, specializations. And so that was also really good, too, because we had some people who were more knowledgeable in you know, certain music areas than others. And so we could bring in DJs who are maybe more appropriate for certain events, depending on what genre was required or scheduling wise you know if you've got a few hours to program you can switch off and that way nobody gets too fatigued from being behind the decks and so that was always sort of a format that i i, I really liked and we've continued to this day 
that, that's really, really great. Um, it's, it's great to hear. I would love to be involved with you guys someday um, and, and, and hopefully bring you over to Chicago also because, you know, I've been, I've been doing events here in Chicago since 2018. Uh, so, you know, I'm fairly new at it, but, uh, you know, I, I, I've been consistent with my events and they've always been kind of city pop themed and uh, there's always been a good reception to it. I think uh, now more than ever, uh, Asian Americans and, and Asians abroad are kind of having their moment to where, you know, their culture is something to be evaluated and to be appreciated. And there's so many good things in it that we're yet to discover and we're yet to kind of implement in our own society. And I think this is that bridge that we're crossing over right now. And today's topic, um, Momoko Kikuchi. I mean, can you think of anyone cuter, anyone more sweet in the whole city pop scene? I know she's an idol, but she's now retroactively assigned as city pop. And uh, why do you think that is? Well, certainly as an idol, or as a, just a performer, she's got a tremendous amount of charisma. Uh, you can see that in her live performances. You know, it just shines through even in just photos she did for magazines and, and you know, things back in the day. Uh, and I think every idol to a certain degree is characterized by the, the genre, you know, that's behind them. You know, I, idol in one regard is just sort of a presentational style, right? An idol is, is you sort of have an image, you have an idea about, about what they're going to look like and what their character is going to be. But when you're talking about... What, what is idol music? Uh, that's a pretty broad, you know, category. In the early '80s, it was largely Kayo Kyoku. You know, it was coming out of the '70s and and it had that big influence on it. Uh, but then, as the '80s sort of started to develop musically, uh, you had idols branching into other genres. And uh, right, looking backward uh, retroactively, we can see that a lot, maybe most, of uh, Kikuchi's music in the 80s was very much built on a city pop foundation. Yeah, looking over the credits on a lot of her albums, uh, you know, you, there's that Omega Tribe, uh, you know, Kei Sugiyama uh, is definitely represented in a lot of the stuff, and you could you could definitely hear the blueprint in there. So, uh, and, and again, a lot of the synthesizers, when I'm listening to her music, the synthesizers are always something that always draws me in, and um, it's, it's definitely something different than what I hear with other idols. I don't have that much experience with idol culture, to be honest with you. I know, you know, Masuda Saiko, uh, you know, Hondo Minako, and a couple people like that, but um, I'm not too clear on that. Uh, I know there are a lot of misconceptions about that culture. Is there anything specific that you think people would want to know about it? Absolutely. First and foremost, I'd like to make the case that idols were authentic musical artists. I think Sometimes they are underestimated musically, uh, and their contribution to, to uh, the the culture of music, I think, is maybe maybe misunderstood. Uh, a lot of the idols from the 70s and 80s were great singers, really well trained, uh, great performers, and hardworking performers. Uh, there's such an important relationship between idols and their fans, and I don't think they ever forgot that. Uh, you know, often recruited young. And having to learn to be part of that big music marketing uh, machine. And so it meant, you know, public appearances. It meant uh, all the different types of fan engagement and, and, and media and things that you have to do. Uh, you know, they were working as hard as any other, anyone else in the music industry. Uh, and I think, if anything, what an idol is 
has more to do with their image and their style. It doesn't necessarily explain their music uh, because when you look at the, the uh, genres they operated in, idols actually did uh, have a lot of different uh, styles and genres that they performed in. Uh, you know, early in the uh, 70s and going into the 80s, it was very Kayo Kyoku driven. As we move further into the 80s, you hear new wave and rock influences and there's other things going on as well. Uh, so that's, I think, to me, the most important thing about how people perceive idols uh, is that they're bona fide musical artists and deserve a tremendous amount of respect for that. that that's really interesting. Uh, that, that's a lot of that I, I did not know. I, you know, I, I was always aware that there was a, a lot of pressure put on these young women uh, to kind of be an idol. And, you know, that, that just the title of idol itself, that, that word is so powerful. And I'm not sure if it carries the same conviction as it does in Japan as, as it does over here, but you know, an idol is just something to be worshipped. Uh, so I mean, it, it's it's a lot of pressure. I can only imagine the stress that you know a lot of these these young girls were were going through. And Momoko, you know, Momo-chan, as she's affectionately called, uh, she was scouted uh, at, at the age of around 15 or so, and she's from Shinagawa. Uh, and Shinagawa is a really cool area. Last time I was to I was in Tokyo, I played in a cafe again. And cafe again is in Shinagawa right next to this record store called Pet Sounds uh, and there's a really nice mall called um, Musashi Koyama next to the train station there. It's, it's a really nice place. Um, so uh, her aunt actually kept a picture of her on the cash register in the restaurant because I guess they had a, a restaurant in Aoyama and uh, a scout or uh, I'm not sure who it was exactly but someone had entered the restaurant and they saw the picture of Momoko smiling next to the cash register and that's what kind of prompted them to kind of inquire as to whether she you know whether she'd be interested or the parents would be interested in letting her become uh, a musician an idol and that kind of set the chain of events uh, that led to who we know now as Momoko Kikuchi uh, and so it just it shows you that like they were scouting girls as young as you know 15 14 who knows how young they were but Momoko especially, being so young and debuting uh, at barely 16, I mean, that to me, it, it's just like you said, it, show, it, it takes a lot of conviction, it takes a lot of discipline for someone so young to be able to just go out there and, and, uh, and, and be brave and just, uh, you know, give it their all in these situations that are brand new to them with all these people around them that are older than them, more experienced. Um, it shows an incredible amount of bravery. Absolutely. And so Momoko especially, her name is what uh, originally drew me to her because I, I love Momo because Momo means peach, a fruit of immortality, and also uh, a very agreeable fruit that everybody likes. <laughs> uh, so, so, And this is like on the Japanese Wikipedia kind of explaining it. Uh, so it's, it's really funny to me because, you know, she is very agreeable. I think anyone who knows Momoko likes Momoko. Her smile is very, very beautiful. And she's just very, she, she has an innocent demeanor that kind of just shines through everything she does. Um, uh, I, I personally am a huge fan of her music. Um, she's had such a very interesting kind of evolution throughout the years, uh, especially through the 80s when she debuted. Uh, and she debuted with uh, an album, Ocean Fight, I think. Uh, but that was in 1980, I think it was 1984. 84, that's correct. Or so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
And so that, that's, that was pretty young. She was around 15 or 16 at the time. So again, yeah, for her to be at that age and performing at that level, I read that she actually uh, sold out the, the, the Budokan, um, the, the Nippon Budokan uh, Stadium. So uh, for her to, and she was the youngest person to ever sell that stadium out. Uh, I believe the, they, they estimate around 22,000 people were in the stadium watching her perform. So for her to be you know, performing at that level, at that age, for that many people, it's, it's really incredible. It really speaks to, the, uh, to her ability as, a, as both a person and as, as an artist. Like, um, there's a very few 16-year-olds or people of that age that I think could handle that kind of stress and pressure. And, and you know, there, there seems to be a bit of um, kind of like a pattern because uh, I'm a huge fan of Miki Matsubara. And Miki Matsubara started around 16 also. Saijo Hideki, uh, another uh, an idol from the 70s, he started at that same age also. So there is this kind of pattern where a lot of these hugely popular people uh, in Japan started at such a young age, and that, that's incredible to me. It, it is to me too, and I think if I were to characterize uh, Kikuchi as an idol, is that she did it with a lot of grace. Uh, her public identity in the uh, 80s was uh, someone who appeared to be very steady and uh, when she uh, appeared on screen uh, when she moved into acting there's also something very natural and very easygoing and authentic about her uh, they got her into movies pretty quickly uh, her first film uh, was Ponce no Anna in 1984 and that was kind of a it was a starring role but uh, you really see what she can do uh, when she appears in uh, Sotsugyo, uh, which was the TV movie uh, that she starred in in 85. Uh, and she has a more prominent role in that film. And you really get to see her act. And, and you realize, okay, I, I see why she moved into acting eventually. It was just something very natural for her. Mm. Yeah, I saw Tara Senshi Boy, uh, the 1985 film that that's starring her. And uh, I, I really like I, I could tell what you're talking about she does have a fluency in acting and and she just has this naturally charming kind of uh, demeanor about her it's very endearing it's very it, it pulls you in um, you can't help but look at her because she commands the screen in a way that's not aggressive but it's just like she just pulls you in with her face and just the way she is it, it's a very she's a very unique person uh, and I think she's still in a, in a in a drama today. I think um, I forget what it's called, but she's still acting today. Yeah, it's it's super cool. Yeah, she's she's definitely been active recently, uh, and uh, had a pretty interesting uh, post idol life. Uh, you know, after after she moved out of music and moved into acting, she didn't stop there. You know, she, she has, and uh, maybe you know that's a a very interesting thing to explore as well. Um, you know, we. We, uh, I think everyone's aware uh, that she had some personal hardships that led her to become uh, po politically active, and and that's a very fascinating topic, isn't it? Yeah, I agree. Uh, for her to uh, come out of being an idol, being in a band, being a, a movie star, and then getting a, a master's degree in uh, work policy, I believe it is, uh, and wanting to kind of... Uh, champion uh, kind of a progressive agenda towards social inclusiveness 
that there's so much merit to that. There is so much to admire in that kind of mentality. Uh, that to me is amazing, and you know, it, it's it's not shocking to me because even through her music, you can tell that she has this very very pure kind of energy to her, a very pure kind of soul. I'm gonna say she's very kind of free from controversy aside from you know uh, whatever divorce she had, but other than that, she's been kind of just a very very steady person, as you said. She hasn't had any uh, anything nefarious or anything overly uh, kind of scandalous about her, and and that to me is uh, that that's a very very admirable thing, and I, I, it makes me appreciate her music more. When I listen to her music now, like it, I get the full picture of who she is as a person, and you know, especially when we're listening to um, music from a country that's not our own, you know, sometimes we have questions about who these people are. Uh, you know what they've done in their life, who they are as a person. So with uh, Momo-san, as she's affectionately called, and I'm gonna call her that too. Uh, she, you know, you could tell that she has been a very, very uh, good person. Uh, you know, and, and I'm going on a, on a whim and saying that uh, only because I feel that in her music and and, and I've seen her interviews and uh, and her podcasts on YouTube. So I watch a lot of the, the things she does, and, and you know, I can kind of tell. You know, I, from 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 her mannerizations and, and the way she is and the way she speaks and the things she says, you can tell that she is a good person. And you know, there's so a few good people like that in the world. So yeah, when you find them, you kind of want to keep on seeing what they're doing and what they're going to do next. There's an unmistakable sincerity there. You can hear it uh, in her performances, and and you can see it on screen. Oh yes, definitely. I am like so, so excited about talking about her because she deserves more attention in the West, I think. And she's uh, it's, it's slowly getting there. She's, um, you know, she's getting a lot of uh, represses of uh, adventure, but uh, she has so many other albums that are good also. And um, I feel like she, as a person, uh, has been kind of progressive uh, throughout her career, uh, more and more so. I mean, she had the, you know, the, the situation with Ramu uh, and, um, you know, the criticism that she faced uh, for having, you know, a band and, and shedding her idol persona to become this rock personality. Even though, for me, that wasn't a rock band. That was more like a fusion, synth pop, like a synth pop fusion, jazz fusion kind of band. It wasn't hard, like rock music. It was really pleasant. I thought it wasn't, it wasn't aggressive in any way to me. Uh, so when they say it was a rock band, I, I kind of laugh a little bit because, you know, that that wasn't rock to me. That that was very, very uh, good pop music, I think, and some of her best work. But, you know, as a lot of people were aware, she received a lot of criticism for, for having uh, foreigners, you know, foreigners on stage with her and in the band. Um, so that, to me, I think was uh, probably... A lot of hurt. Uh, it was hurtful for her. Uh, I, I think she expected more uh, from the Japanese uh, public at large to accept. But you know, it is what it is. Uh, she 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 tried uh, to do it, and I think it's admirable what she did. Really, it speaks to her humility as an artist that after having been the sole focus of her career and brand as an idol, that she was willing to share the stage and trade off vocals. Uh, you know, with uh, Darrell Foster Holden and uh, Wasayu Renee Keel, right? They were her backing vocalists, but they really make strong use of them, especially on the choruses of the songs and everything. 
And for me, it's a really nice thing to see. It's neat to see her go from being a solo performer to being part of what was actually a very large band, right? And and being part of that unit and, and being Damu and not just Momoko Kikuchi. I think it's awesome. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I, I love everything about that. And, um, you know, but I, I also understand the, um, the hesitancy of the Japanese public because they probably weren't ready for something so progressive, especially because Momoko was so loved. She was beloved by her fan base. Uh, you know, they loved her as an idol and they saw her as this innocent, pure kind of uh, innocent girl, this innocent, demeanored girl. Uh, and so for her to shed this... Uh, you know, idol personality of hers and become this rock person, this rock star with two foreigners on stage. I think it was a culture shock for a lot of people and they just weren't ready to accept that. They felt, uh, you know, I read uh, that uh, a lot of her fans felt betrayed. They felt like they betrayed, like she betrayed them by doing something so brash and so shocking to them. But to me, of course, you know, us in the West, it wouldn't shock us at all. This is kind of like normal for us. But, you know, that that time period in Japan, you know, it, it was not as progressive as it was in the West, obviously. Um, but that's what, it, you know, it is what it is that that was society then. And she she held her head with grace. I think she she did it as best as she could. Uh, and at least she tried to do it. And um, I, I remember reading that she was so happy that she finally wasn't alone. She wasn't just an idol by herself. She was with a band. She was with other people. She was one of seven. And I thought that was so endearing that, that, you know, it kind of made me feel sad in a way because she, you know, all these years was by herself uh, on stage and, and kind of having to navigate this uh, music industry on her own. And all of a sudden she has people behind her. She has like two backup vocalists that are amazing. Holden and Keel were just wonderful, wonderful artists themselves. And for them to be collaborating together, I think that was so significant for the time. It was so progressive. It was so wonderful and uh, you know the reception they got and the criticism they got was just so uh, it was so sad it was I, I felt sad just reading the story and looking over the details and you know it, it just it kind of broke my heart a little bit it is unfortunate and I think too that Ramu was also very probably a victim of the changing music industry uh, because you know they're, they're hitting in the late 80s and that's really when the transitional period was beginning from the uh, Kayo Kyoku era to the J-pop era. And from around 88 to about 92, that's really what I consider kind of the, the flux period where you have these artists that have been around for, for quite a while who are sort of trying to figure out how are we going to grow up as an artist, especially her generation of idols who are st all started around 1980, 1981. Uh, you know, all of her contemporaries were trying to figure out how do I grow up as an artist. At the same time, uh, music on the whole was changing, and uh, there were some artists in that transitional era that were really unique, you know, and awesome. And we all know, like Wink, Princess Princess, uh, TM Network. Uh, you know, their their era was that 80s going into the early 90s. But once you get to 92, uh, it's the J-pop era, and it, it, it it's almost as big a change as we saw you know in the united states when uh the 80s rock scene ended and you have nirvana and you know all the seattle bands on the scene it was a really big shift and and from around 92 onward you know the industry and the sound was dominated by that like tetsuya komaro j-pop you know techno rock influenced sound and so 
you know, Ramu hits just as sort of that transition is beginning. And I'm sure that, that a lot of people didn't know what to make of it, you know, as this old era that they knew was kind of fading out and this new sort of flashy stuff was coming in. And uh, I'm, I'm sure, you know, or at least I, I'd like to think that, uh, you know, in retrospect, um, that experiment, you know, Ramu, uh, is, is, is going to be getting, you know, the respect that they deserve. Um, you know, the Ramu was also re-released in Japan, the, the uh, album Thanksgiving. Uh, and uh, that's great. You know, it's, it's, it seems like it's, it's kind of justice after all these years that it's also part of the, uh, the renaissance of uh, Kikuchi Momoto now. I'm sure, uh, because it, it was such a great idea. Even the concept, the name, uh, Mu is uh, a mythological continent, uh, also known as Lemuria. Uh, so Mu was supposedly a continent in the Pacific. It was a massive continent, uh, and it was supposed to be like a highly advanced technologically, like advanced culture lived on it. And um, apparently the island disappeared. There was some kind of explosion or something like that, but the entire thing blew up and it disappeared into the ocean. And that was Mu. And so Ramu was apparently the... Ramu was the king of Mu. So Ra was kind of like the Egyptian sun god or something to that effect. So there's a lot of lore, like a lot of lore to the story of, of Ramu. And so the fact that she chose that name for the band is so interesting to me because it shows you that she has like an appreciation for not only mythology, but for uh, kind of cultural uh, quirks too. And I think that, that that speaks to her kind of creativity and personality. And I love that about her. It's, it's a very cool name, and thematically, it also fits a lot of what they're talking about in the music, because there's a, a lot of uh, uh, references on that album to uh, island life, you know, island adventures. Uh, you know, you can, you can imagine, you know, the, the sort of the, the, this, this sea theme uh, behind that album as, as well. You know, a couple of my favorite songs have to do with, like, island getaways. And things. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, so as far as, you know, Japanese female artists uh, who are now having kind of like a renaissance of their music, you know, I, you know, it, it began with Maria Takeuchi, of course, Takeuchi Maria, uh, Matsuara Miki, and uh, of course, you know, now I feel there is this whole, uh, you know, Kikuchi Momoko movement going on that she, she's having a re revitalization, she's becoming more uh, well-known and, and more appreciated, and I'm so glad for that, because, um, I think she didn't. She, well, she she stopped making music uh, in 1991 after uh, that one album, Mira, uh, and then um, she focused mostly on TV commercials and movies. And then what's interesting to me is that in 2015, she was actually signed up uh, in Shinzo Abe's uh, kind of like a, as a guest uh, at, for this event. It was called the One Million Total Success National Assembly. Or something to that effect and it was kind of like a, a, a national movement towards uh, solving uh, uh, population decline and other issues that the country was facing and um, so Momoko was assigned to this kind of committee as a, as a guest and and she presented ideas that were based around social inclusion uh, which for me you know that that speaks a lot again to her ability to be progressive and to think progressively and again, maybe that is due to the hardships she faced with certain things that she's experienced in life. Um, but one interesting thing that I that I read on the Japanese Wikipedia is that uh, 
when she wrote the proposal for social inclusion, uh, she apparently used a lot of katakana, uh, a lot of English translated words and some horizontal text. And that in itself caused a lot of kind of grief. A lot of, uh, a lot of officials did not like that. They, they found um, something disfavorable about it. Only because, you know, again, she's using katakana words. She's using English translated words and horizontal text. And for that, that caused a little bit of trouble in uh, relaying the message that she was trying to, to get across of social inclusion and kind of women's work rights after uh, childbirth and things like that. So she was, she was really trying to champion some ideas that were extremely progressive for, for Japan, I think. And uh, that to me is so, uh, it's so amazing. It, it really uh, makes me appreciate her that much more. It's really neat. It's, in a way, it's very punk rock. And, and the way that she delivered that information is very punk rock. When you, you know, when you're aware of how uh, conservative, uh, you know, Japanese policymaking is, and I don't mean conservative politically, but just in terms of, of being very traditionalist. And and so, uh, you know, for her, you know, proposal to come across that way, it's it's pretty cool actually. Oh yeah, yeah, I I completely agree. And so, um, so what we're gonna do now, uh, we're gonna take a quick break, and as soon as we get back, we'll go ahead and discuss her first six studio albums. That'll include her first five uh, that she did solo, and of course her, her album Ramu, or her album uh, with Ramu. So just let's go ahead and um, take a quick break, and as soon as we get back, we'll go ahead and uh, pick right back up. Sounds great. <laughs> この猫山との宅急便はね荷物をお預かりすると ときより手紙を書きます涙で文字が滲んでいたなら分かって頃苦さ初めて知りました。UCCレギュラーコーヒー偉人館クラブ。つややか、つややか、つややかカバー。Welcome back to Mayonaka Hour. I am Van Pogam and I am here with DJ Greg Hignite of Tune in Tokyo. It's been such a great conversation so far, and uh, we still have some some more to go. We're going to go ahead and review uh, Momo-chan's first six studio albums, and that includes Ramu uh, Thanksgiving. So her in the uh, early 80s, you know, she debuted with uh, the album Oceanside, and Oceanside is a very... Uh, it's a very beautiful album. The album cover art is very uh, evocative. Um... It's very, it's very summery to me. It gives me a very Toshiki Karomatsu kind of vibe to it because you know she's in the ocean. There's a lot of themes about the beach, um, 
It's a very, very beautiful album, I think, as she had very little control over anything. Obviously, she was just singing. She had a huge production crew. Uh, the team behind her was just, uh, you know, a, a class act. Uh, she had so many people working behind the scenes that were just masters of their craft, wouldn't you say? Yes. Uh, a lot of the, the back end of that album has some really strong connections with um, S. Kiyotaka and Omega Tribe. Most importantly, the uh, supervising producer for most of her work in that era was Tetsuji Hayashi, who also worked with Omega Tribe and was responsible for a lot of other city pop releases in the 1980s. Uh, and uh, so you've got him kind of the, the master of everything, but then you also had some amazing songwriters as well, uh, including uh, Yasushi Akimoto, uh, known for being the uh, person behind uh, Onyanko Club and AKB48, as well as being a prolific songwriter. For him to be behind that, uh, it speaks volumes about what was going on behind the scenes uh, for Oceanside. Uh, they really believed in what Momoko Kikuchi could do, and you know she proved them all right because I mean that album, her being so young and it being her debut album, I thought she uh, she shined in this album, and I, I really enjoyed every single song on it. Of course, I have my favorites like anyone else. But what's your favorite on here? I, it would have to be Blind Curve, and and it's 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 fascinating. You know, uh, the thing about Oceanside is is uh, Kikuchi's not messing around. It it is really a deep, sophisticated album. You know, it's got some sweet songs on it, and there's definitely, uh, you know, it, some stuff that's evocative of her age and her demeanor at that time. But the songwriting and the arrangements are really sophisticated. And uh, Blind Curve is, there's a lot baked into that song. It, it, it's a love song, but it's one that is, uh, deals with a lot of uncertainty and kind of a game, you know, that she's playing with the other guy. Um, you know, her perspective is someone who is falling into a situation that they're not so sure about. Uh, and that coupled with the, the, uh, the arrangement and that strong baseline and everything, it, it really uh, is, is a lot of mystery going on with that song. And, and, and I, I, I like it. It's, it's just, it's, it's kind of cool. Blind Curve is definitely one of the standouts on here. And another one for me, of course, I like Summer Eyes because... That was, I think that was a single in itself outside of this, right? Um, yeah, it was, actually. I think it was her second. So her first one is Seishun no Ijiwaru, and Summarize, I believe, was the second single she released. Yep, yep, yep. Summer, Summarize definitely was, because I'm looking at the uh, picture of her now, and uh, the picture of the single uh, is just her kind of staring at the camera, and like <laughs> her eyes are just huge, and she's just saying... <laughs> And she just kind of has like this very uh, cute, very innocent look, and she's just staring at the camera with like a very almost blank expression. It's 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 very interesting. Um, but uh, the lyrics on this again, um, lyrics a little bit. You know, when I go over them, of course they're really well done. They're really complex. Uh, they're really mature. But uh, some of the things that are said in it, I'm like, well, this is definitely an older man writing this for a young woman. <laughs> Uh, but whatever, it, it's still a great song. I still love it a lot. Um, but it, it does seem like a love letter to a man who had their girlfriends leave them. <laughs> we'll, we'll just leave it at that. It's still beautiful. Um, uh, so uh, uh, Evening Break is also kind of a good one. Um, 
like that one a lot. I mean, who doesn't like an evening break? Uh, and it, it gives me a little bit of a sugar, a sugar babe vibe. Like, you know, downtown by sugar babe. Right. Yeah, it does. It does. Yeah. A little bit of that, you know, it has that really urban kind of topic, uh, where she's talking about, you know, the lifestyle of living in a city and the weekends coming up and, you know, it is, but in a, in a bubblegum kind of way, I really like that. So yeah, that, that's a really good one too. Any other standouts for you? I think the whole uh, album is solid. Uh, one thing that is great about it is I don't think there's a dull moment on the album. Uh, and I think that speaks uh, a, a lot to Hayashi's role because uh, I think one of the other misconceptions people have about idol music is that the music isn't so important, right? It's, it's more about the performer. But you strip out those vocals, you know, Kikuchi's lovely vocals, you strip them out, and... And you have some really amazing music going on there, uh, as far as the you know the, the complexity of the arrangements and the different sounds and and vibes that they're hitting with. Every song is different, has a different flavor to it, um, and I think that Oceanside weighed against her later albums has its own character because I think that it sounds the most like a Kayo Kyoku album of all of her stuff. Which isn't to say that it is a Kayo Kyoko album, but I think as her career is starting and she is coming out there as an idol, it's the most idol sounding. But that being said, you know, you know, you, you listen to her first couple singles or the first couple tracks on that album, then you get the blind curve and you're like, oh, whoa, wait a minute, what's going on here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's no dull moment on here. It really takes you on a ride. There's a story to it. That brings us to, uh, and this was 1984, this brings us to 1985, Tropic of Capricorn. Uh, what's your first impression? Wow, this is a fantastic album. I, I think that it also kind of hits you by surprise, because it starts with uh, Sotsugyo, you know, Graduation, which was the theme from her television film that she did. And that very much sounds like a 1980s, early 80s Kaio Kyoku uh, ballad. Then you get to initial and calendar, and all of a sudden, you're going full city pop. And from there, there's just it's such a dynamic album. Yeah, I, I love this one. And you know, it opens up with graduation, subsequently, um, and this was like the theme song to like a movie too, right? Right. Yeah. It it's um, a TV movie. Uh, it's kind of an interesting one because it, it's it's a little bit of a coming of age story, but there's also a murder mystery baked into it. Um, so it, 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 it's kind of a, a interesting story the way it, it plays out. Um, but she's a high school student, you know, and it's about her high school life. And, and then she kind of bears witness to and gets involved in, in kind of some nefarious things. And that's kind of where the dramatic elements of the story come <laughs> from. Oh, nice. Yeah. I haven't seen it, but I really do want to see it. Um, boyfriend, of course, uh, I think that's another, is that another movie song? I think it's from Tara Senshi boy. Um, she did, uh, um, for that film, that was, uh, ah, different, different. She did Boy, Boy No Theme <laughs> for Tara Senshi Sci Boy. Yeah, I had to, I had to jog my memory on that one. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that was an interesting one. Uh, did you see that movie, Tara Senshi Boy? I, I did, yeah. Um, it's kind of a weird sci-fi movie, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she has like pyrokinesis or something. Right, right, and and there, yeah. Um, 
I, I love that in that movie and also in Graduation, her character is also called Momoko. That makes it easy <laughs> for everyone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love that she was like, you know what? They're not even going to try and name her something else because Momoko is such a, such a memorable name. They're like, well, why would we ever give her a different name? That, that name is so iconic. Uh, it, it stays with you forever. I often think of that name. When I'm bored, I'm just like, hmm, Momoko. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm with you on, on Dear Children. That's a great song. And, and there's a lot to unpack. You know, it's a very interesting narrative. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that one is great. And uh, I, I do really like Initial and Calendar. I think that's a, a very cool song. Um, you know, it's a good way to thematically kick off the album. Um, uh, you know, there's, a, there's um, uh, the, the last one also, the, the, the closing one, um, Minami Kaikasan. Uh, Tropic of Capricorn, the title track, which she saved for the last one, which makes it so much more poignant. Um, you know, I, I never preferred uh, the, her, her slower songs until I heard this one because it, it's so lush, it's so expansive. It's a beautiful song. I love like the twinkly synth, the synths in the, that are kind of like sparkly. They're like champagne synths, I, I think uh, Alan, Alan Ikasaka calls them. Um, and of course, there's a, an amazing sax solo at the end that's just a, a cream on the top of it. It's just such a beautiful top-notch ballad. I love it deeply. I, I think it's such a great song. Um, and of course, she's talking about she loves about someone she loves deeply in it, uh, kind of like an, an inevitable distance and a sea line that she'll never cross, which is the Tropic of Capricorn. Um, so yeah, this this was such a beautiful uh, album. I think it was it was a great great continuation of what she what she did in uh, Oceanside. Um, so yeah, this is another classic one. And you know, uh, for anyone who's been trying to pick up these vinyl records, these are really cheap right now. Get them while you can, because you know who knows uh, what these might cost in five ten years from now. And they're right now, if you go on Discogs, they're probably like twenty thirty forty dollars. That's a steal. You know, a lot of these City Pop albums back five years ago when I started were, you know, dirt cheap. And now they're worth hundreds of dollars. So if you want to make an investment, if you want to add to your collection, if you want to kind of, you know, add to the culture and, and kind of, you know, give it its due respect. Buy some of these records, you know, patron, be a patron to these artists because they, they deserve it. And it does make a difference. They do notice. Their record labels notice. So, yeah, buy, buy vinyl. Buy vinyl records and, and, and buy the originals if you can. And buy, buy the uh, represses too, whatever, you know, whatever you, whatever you can. Um, so this brings us to one of the most iconic records of City Pop in general. I don't think anyone will deny Adventure from 1986 is such a, such a bop. Everything on here is just gold. Yeah, this is, uh, you know, I, I had said about Tropic of Capricorn that at some point in an album she goes full city pop. And, and while I, th- I think that's the case, Adventure really represents the evolution of that. And that's when I think she has become a different artist than she was with Oceanside. And, uh, and I think that's a big reason why it's classic. This one is... I mean, it, it, it's immaculate. There's an extreme amount of professionalism, an extreme amount of just, uh, it's just composed so well, it's arranged well, everything it, everything works on it. And that is the reason why uh, it's been repressed a couple times because everyone wants it. It's it's an easy listen throughout the entire thing. Nothing, is, nothing takes you out of the mood. It sets a vibe from the beginning with Overture. 
the overture, uh, it kind of just sets the mood, and you know what you're going to get in because it gives you that beautiful synth prelude uh, kind of theme, and it, it does a great job of letting you know what you're going to be getting. Uh, and that leads into Adventure, and Adventure is one another one of my favorite, favorite tracks from her, especially on here. It does so well to kind of, you know, let you know, you know, this is what you're going to get. It's, it's an amazingly beautiful song. You have that kind of calypso uh, drum fill in the beginning and the synth jingles. Uh, it sets you on a very pleasant journey. You know you're going to go on an adventure with this album. Uh, the lyrics, the pacing, the tempo, everything just fits together. It really, really harmonizes wonderfully. Uh, I think they did such an incredible job on here. Um, and so I, I have the original, of course, but I, I do want to get the purple version at some, some point. Any other song on here that you feel strongly about? Hmm. That's like asking someone to pick, you know, who your favorite <laughs> child, child is, right? Uh, <laughs> oh my yeah. God. yeah. For, for me, there, there's two of them. And the first one would be Mo Ai Nai Kamo Shida Nai. Um, it's a really, you know, kind of a banger of a track to follow adventure. It's, it's a really good sort of shift in tone. And it's also very melancholy. I, I think something that is a, a, a constant part of Kayo Kyoku music is there's a certain wistfulness and, and sadness. Uh, you know, there's there's love songs that aren't necessarily cheery songs or songs with a happy ending, but aren't necessarily a sad ending either. There's just sort of some longing, some unres you know, uh, uh, this song in particular, it's, you know, there's something about it that's unresolved. Um, so it, it really kind of kind of tugs at you. You know, there's something really visceral about it. Uh, great, great song. I, that, that's definitely a favorite. And uh, also Good Friend. That is an interesting song as well, too. Mm. Mm. Um, you know, it's almost a little bit salty. I'm still, trying to, <laughs> I'm still trying to understand, you know, what her perspective is in that song mm -hmm. uh, with the use of the English lyrics and everything. Um, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's definitely, it's kind of a complicated narrative going on there. And, and it, it definitely, it, it bears discussion, you know, about... The relationships in the song. Uh, I think uh, uh, important thing about adventure is that most of the songwriters on this album were women, and it you know I think it represents obviously an evolution of uh, the story uh, that uh, Kikuchi was telling with her music. Yeah, that that is such an important element to it, and I hadn't thought about that, but yet there are more female lyricists on this. Um, so this album, like I mean, you can tell right off the bat that it's just I have so much to say about it. Because it's one of my favorite albums of all time, Lafon's out, City Pop or not. It's, it's a beautiful, 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 well-produced album that deserves uh, the credit that, uh, you know, an, an album of, of this, you know, magnitude deserves. Um, but it's dazzling. The composition and arrangement is, is just, you know, top-notch. Uh, I really love that a lot. Uh, and, you know, we're going to get to this one because it... We have to discuss it. Mystical composer. Yeah. Come on. Come on. <laughs> yeah, what a fascinating song. Uh, mm -hmm. Lyrically and also musically as well, too. And the performance in that song is great. Oh, yeah. I mean, from start to finish, it is just, it just keeps your, keeps your attention from start to finish. It does not have a dull moment in it. It's constantly shifting. It's a, it's a very chameleon kind of song where every moment you don't know what might happen. It's a very, you know, it's a mystical composition, uh, you know, and it, the title suits it perfectly. Uh, with me, 
it, it does a lot uh, for me. But uh, um, I'm sure a lot of people do as well. But I mean, it's just it's iconic, Momo, Go Kikuchi for sure. Yeah, it's 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 really good. You know, it's the second to the last song on the album, so it's kind of gets you sort of winding down in sort of a contemplative mood. Uh, I I think that you know when when you're when you're a DJ and you're you're in the club, you're trying to create a uh, uh, an escapism, an atmosphere for people. Um, I heard a really good interview with Porter Robinson recently where he was talking about this, where you're basically you're trying to create a reality when you're on stage, and that's sort of the role of music. You know, it's it's to it's to put people in a different reality. So you can throw this album on, and whether you're listening to it intently or it's ambient, it really it takes you to another place. And I think that speaks about how solid and consistent it is. Uh, you know, it, it, it really does, um, uh, through, through music, kind of transport you. And, and uh, uh, for that, I think it's, you know, it's awesome. It's luminous. You know, I, I agree with you 100%. Immaculate. I can't talk, I can't say enough about, enough about it. It's just so good. I could just talk about it endlessly. <laughs> but, um, so yeah, it ends with the song that is, uh, you know, appropriately called Tomorrow. Um, and this one, I mean, it, it's, it's beautiful. I, I could cry just listening to this song. <laughs> it, it's just so, it's so great. You know, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna cry. Let's just move on. So, uh, <laughs> after this, you know, 1987, Escape from Dimension. Yeah. So, okay. I love all of the albums we've discussed so far. Uh, but I really was looking forward to talking about Escape from Dimension. Uh, personally, I think this album is very cool. And uh, on the back end, a lot of the talent we've discussed before, as well as some other people involved in this, that were pretty mind-blowing. Um, so, yeah. Great, great album, and it, it, it starts with a bang, uh, with Starlight Movement. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's 1987, and Starlight Movement, it gives you 1987. Uh, but it's a full-on synth-pop banger. I'm here for every moment of this song. I really, really love it. I uh, dropped this uh, at the club the last time I was spinning a live set, and it's the first time I got to hear it you know, in a nightclub and be immersed in it. And that was something else, you know, I was like, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm feeling this moment here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the confidence is there, you know, she's getting funkier, she's getting a little wilder than before, especially on tracks like Yokohama City of Lights, that has a really, really interesting bass line. Um, you know, the production team, as always, is uh, just, you know, masters of their craft. Arrangement remains as slick as ever. There's a twinge of funkiness coming from every angle. I just, you know, she can tell that she's already getting the idea of what she wants to do next and escaped him from dimension. You know, even from the title of the album, you can tell that she's just ready to like escape from dimension for whatever dimension she's in, uh, this idle dimension that she's trapped in. She's ready to escape. And uh, it shows even on the, on the album cover where she's like in this uh, air balloon, just like trying to, get away from, you know, the, the world, from whatever she's already known. I mean, there's so much metaphor in this. Um, there's so much subtext in this. It's it's a lot to read. Uh, it's, it's a lot to absorb. And it's uh, very enjoyable from start to finish. Um, I think she has a very specific attitude on here. You know, she's at the crossroads of youth and adulthood at this time. You know, she's, she's at that age uh, where she's trying to find 
you know, who Momoko is, who, who is she going to be. Um, and so I, I love this album. I would also say that, and it didn't start with this album. I think it probably started with Tropic of Capricorn. Um, don't hear it so much on Adventure because Adventure is very much like a core city pop album. But she starts to venture into modern rock and new wave sounds as well, too. And, and you hear that very much on Escape from the Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, you could definitely hear all of that. I mean, there's so, there's so many bangers on here. It's crazy. Uh, any other tracks on here that really uh, call out to you? Yeah, there's a couple that I, I just love. Um, so Dream and Rider and Yokohama City of Lights were arranged by Shiro Sagisu, who uh, is my favorite anime composer. He was behind really? he was behind the soundtrack, my favorite anime soundtrack of all time, which is for the OVA Megazone 2-3. And, and he did a lot of other amazing, especially OAV soundtracks in that era. He, he worked in synth funk, rock, uh, jazz fusion, a lot of different genres, a lot of synth, uh, and you can hear those elements in these songs that he arranged for uh, Kikuchi on this album. Uh, he also, uh, a little bit later on down the line, is known for doing the score for Neon Genesis Evangelion. I did not know that. Um, Yokohama City of Lights is awesome, right? It's it's such a, a you know it's very funky, um, it's very atmospheric. Uh, you know, I, I think it, it definitely. Uh, you know, narratively hits all the city pop notes at the same time. Um, and I think it kind of continues that more sort of aggressive sonic experience you get with this album. Uh, mm. You know, Starlight Movement, Dream and Rider, Yokohama City of Lights, it's definitely kind of taking you somewhere new uh, with her music. Can we just take a moment to appreciate the harmonica solo at the end of Yokohama City of Lights? <laughs> and I think uh, Escape from Dimension, I think, uh, again, I think it's, it's a metaphor for for something else that was going on with her. Uh, I really probably do think that she wanted to uh, shed her her idol persona. And uh, of course it happens with uh, Ramu uh, the next year in 1988. Uh, so um, what do you think about Ramu Thanksgiving? One last uh, thing about Escape from Dimension before we move on that I think is a super cool uh, thing, and that is the song Ivory Coast. Um, that hits about halfway through the album, and that was arranged by Joe Hisaishi, uh, known for being uh, Hayao Miyazaki's number one composer. You know, he's, he's Miyazaki's go-to guy. He was responsible for all of those memorable soundtracks that we know. And I should say, too, you know, it, it's important to note that... Uh, the lyricist on a lot of the songs on this album was the great uh, Masao Udino, who is known for Shoujo A from Nakamori Akina, her song Jukai, uh, worked with uh, Kawai Naoko, a lot of really famous early 80s idols, and, and he wrote about half of the songs on Escape from Dimension. Ah, wow, yeah, and you can definitely tell because they definitely have a more easy to like absorb pop kind of elements to the lyrics and uh, that are enjoyable. All right, so uh, it's time for some Ramu, right? <laughs> this is what I've been waiting for. Right? This is what a lot of people have been waiting for because, I mean, it is like it, it's, it's the, the singularity of Momoko's career. You know, this is like it tears the fabric apart of what she had been, who she had been. It shocked so many people. It created a ripple that it's just like it still felt today. So yeah, in, in 1988, actually February 17th, 1988, 
Nomoko Kikuchi actually held an independent press conference at the Akasaka Prince Hotel, which was at the time a very iconic uh, bubble era hotel. This was kind of like the, the apex of the bubble economy, the Akasaka Prince Hotel. It held a huge amount of significance in the bubble era. And the fact that she uh, announced that she was uh, like shedding this idol persona to become a rock uh, a rock singer, a vocalist for this newly formed band called Ramu, with two foreigners as her backup singers. Uh, it, it was a huge moment. It, it created a shockwave that Japan was not ready for. It was definitely a radical move on her part. And being out with it and just being like, this is who I am, this is what I'm going to do, it's pretty remarkable. Yeah, very brave, uh, very brazen for her. And you know, I, I, she's at and she's at that age where she's probably feeling really rebellious. Uh, you know, and because she's been held back, well, not held back, but probably told what to do for so long. You know, she's been in the music industry since she was fifteen or so, and now she's about twenty or nineteen around that age. So she's probably like, you know, what I'm gonna go ahead and strike out on my own and do what I want to do. This is me. I've been celebrated for so long i'm gonna be able to just do what i want and people are gonna respond to it positively that's probably what she thought uh the japanese public had a different reaction of course so for her to just come out and say i'm not gonna be this person who you knew me as i'm going to be this rock singer and have these two foreigners these two extremely talented women i will say holden and kill they, they really really were talented and it, it's so kind of like unfortunate that uh, they had to deal with the scrutiny and the skepticism that the Japanese public put on it and uh, you know they had a whole tour plan for that album when I look at the videos now I'm like wow this was this was an experience like I would pay to see this I'd, I'd pay to be there uh, and so for them to cancel the, the tour because you know the criticism and the lack of support uh, you know, it's incredibly unfortunate because it had so much potential. It was so progressive for the time. Um, and, you know, Japan, uh, they just weren't ready for that level of progress. I think. It, it, it seems to be the case. Uh, you know, I, I think uh, it would be um, interesting to sort of understand uh, some of the, the things that were kind of going on that, that behind the scenes, right, that we wouldn't necessarily you know about or, or even at the time people would have known about. Um, but taking a step away from all of this and just looking at Ramu conceptually, it's, it was a really awesome um, idea. It was a really great project and uh, kind of ahead of their time. Uh, I, I tend to think of Ramu as being almost a sophisticated band, uh, which, you know, of course, is late, late 90s UK mostly. Uh, so I think they're about 10 years ahead of the curve on that, that sound, bringing together those different elements, you know, definitely very jazz oriented, uh, you know, seven, seven members there. So there's a lot going on on stage and, and as far as like the musical arrangements and everything. And although what happened back then is definitely unfortunate and it's kind of sad, um, I think we're at the point now where fortunately we can look at that, you know, 25, 30 years on and just look at what it was artistically. And in, in that regard, you know, it's, it's a home run. Uh, I, I think Ramu is very cool. Rainy Night Lady. <laughs> <laughs> Going into Rainy Night Lady. Oh, my God. I, I, 
it's the first song on here and they start with a total total banger it just sets off this chain of events in your mind i love 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 rainy night lady it's uh very mature uh in theme uh, you can tell that it's a bit of a departure from the idol kind of persona for sure uh, if you look over the lyrics it's a little bit of a tinge of rebelliousness some you know a little bit of pr promiscuous nature and uh and how she's kind of conveying uh, these lyrics but the synth bass lines are very tough like it's a very tough bass line uh, her voice perfectly melts into the music it uh, perfectly is in juxtaposition with 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 Holden and Keel like they all work together perfectly yeah. it creates such a harmonious kind of sound that today is very contemporary yeah um, it's a great start to the album I think if someone is on YouTube and they're getting interested in city pop like what city pop they hit rain, they hit rainy lady and they're like oh this is city pop <laughs> yeah. I, I feel like it's oh, yeah. it's like a, a core kind of fundamental representation you know of, of what the genre I think is um, yeah in, in a very cool way <laughs> oh my god yes I I have to agree with you from start to finish that song is just wonderful I love it it is quintessential city pop for me uh, whenever I'm out at night and it's raining and I see any lady. In my head, <laughs> Rainy Night Lady starts to play. <laughs> yeah, so my favorite probably is Tokyo Yabanjin, um, mm -hmm. which is, you know, tells a cool story. You know, there's, 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 um, it, 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 it's not exactly a love song because it's, it's about, you know, it's about this guy that she knows who's kind of a player. Uh, <laughs> and, 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 you know, what she thinks of him and how she's dealing with it and everything. Um, you know, uh, Yabanji means barbarian. It's what's called Tokyo Barbarian, yeah. uh, which yep. is very, you know, it's cool, right? It's, it's a really neat song. Yeah. I like that one a lot. And that one was also released as a single. Um, uh -huh. And I should add that um, the, the B-side for Tokyo Barbarian is actually my favorite Ramu song, and it was actually not on Thanksgiving. And that's, really? Yeah, and that's the song Silent Summer Sea. Um, mm. which is just gorgeous. It, it is such a luminous sounding song. It's very, it's a kind of funky, but it's got some really heavy synth in it. Um, the, the juxtaposition, excuse me, the uh, juxtaposition of, uh, Kikuchi along with Holden and Keel is great. The way their vocals interplay on it. Uh, um, really dreamy. I, I love, I love that song so much. I'm actually kind of surprised it didn't end up on the album, but the thing is, Thanksgiving is so good, right? You know, and, and of course it's vinyl, right? So you have to decide how many songs are going on there. It can't be an hour and 20 minutes long. Exactly. So I, so I get it. You know, I, I get why every great song couldn't be on there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I love uh, Tokyo Yamajin. And, it, and, and it's just very catchy, you know. I love the cute, cute, that, that part. It's, yeah, isn't that it's, cool? It's <laughs> yeah. It's totally one of my favorite songs on this for sure. I will say Boy Kills Angel is another really nice one on there. It has kind of a Toshiki Karumatsu, uh, Gold Digger kind of vibe on it. Because um, he was kind of doing very uh, like urban New York-y kind of uh, club music. And it gives me that vibe a little bit. Boy Kills Angel for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is another album where I think the whole thing is solid. You know, um, I kind of alluded to that earlier, but... Um, it's a complete experience, start to finish, and again, there's never a dull moment on it. Um, the the sonic 
tapestry is very broad. Um, it's one of the great things about Ramu being a fusion band is that there's a lot of different musical genres represented. Like you can kind of say mm -hmm. like, oh, this is a Ramu song, um, mm -hmm. but they do operate in a lot of different genres there. And I think that's why I kind of think of it as, as being almost a sophisticated album. Um, oh yeah, I love that word, sophisticated. Um, you know, another song of theirs um, that was released as a single um, that I absolutely love is Aoyama Killer Monogatari. Um, mm. That's another great one. And it, it uh, and what's really interesting about that song is that the, the, it, the opening melody actually kind of references Glass Nosogen, which is one of her older songs, is an idol. And the first bar oh, is almost the same. I, like, I've listened to it, you know, back to back and like, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, this is really interesting the way they did this. Um, and I don't know if that's, in, in, you know, intentional or not, but I think mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a very cool little detail in that song. <laughs> but yeah, Glass No Sogan, I will say, is one of uh, my favorite songs from her that aren't uh, anything we've listed today. Uh, but yeah, um, overall, such an impressive effort, such a sad story. Um, so much to look back on and, and so much to appreciate with, with Ramu. Uh, if it would have evolved, it w if she would have had the support to keep going, I can't imagine what this would have become because there was so much potential in it. There was so much uh, talent, raw talent, raw passion, commitment, discipline. It was, you know, they were in it. They were in it to kind of make it the best it could possibly be. And it's so sad that it didn't reach that fruition. Uh, you know, maybe in another university. <laughs> and uh, I, hope they're in, I hope they're enjoying it because man, I want it. Uh, so yeah. Uh, any last comments about this one? I think that would be a very cool universe to visit. I definitely want to check, I want to check that place out sometime. <laughs> How about we escape from this dimension? <laughs> that one. That's a, that sounds good to me. Well, I think it was. I think it was really nice getting all the way to Thanksgiving um, because that that's definitely I think closing the book on on her her eighties era. Not just because of the decade, but also her, her sound and sort of where she was. Because uh, you know where we go from here, I think is pretty different. I think. You'd probably agree on that. So, um, you know, Ramu, great album, great conclusion to her 80s era sound. Um, and I'm really happy that people are rediscovering it now. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I'm just going to mention uh, Mirror uh, just briefly only because it, it, it's very sentimental. I feel like it is her last kind of um, last attempt at uh, saying goodbye to the uh, music industry because uh, a lot of the songs on there. It's 1991. You know, it's it's already the DOS decade. Uh, the bubble economy has popped, so you can tell there's a lot of somberness. There's a lot of melancholy in this, and there's a lot of uh, you can tell a little bit of regret in, in some of the lyricism on Mirror from 1991, especially on the first track. Uh, she seems a little bit disillusioned. You can tell in the lyrics that she's uh, you know wiping away tears, and you know there's dreams and waking up and things like that. So um, yeah, 1991. Uh, I would say the end of this era for Momoko Kikuchi. A ab absolutely. And I actually have a couple thoughts about Niwa, Kagami no Mukogawa Ni, if you'd like to hear them. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, uh, I think an important thing about this album is that the staff behind it was completely different than everyone she worked with before. And I think that's why uh, Ramu sort of serves as a great bookend uh, for who she was in the 80s. Uh, the songwriters on that, that Miwa album are uh, Reiko... Uh, Yukawa, Fumiko Okada, and uh, Kikuchi herself. 
And so it's it, it, it's really coming from a different place. And it's really, I think, ostensibly a jazz album, uh, if I were to cate- categorize it. Um, the, the song for me that is really interesting um, is Kyowa Hyakudome no Kenka, um, which almost seems to be subverting a lot of her uh, songs from the early days because it's about a couple who's on a drive. But rather than being this like happy song where they're like driving to the beach or in the city and it's mm-hmm. they're fighting and the songs about like this is like the hundredth time they fought and are they going to keep fighting like this and there's there's kind of no end to it the, the song doesn't have any kind of resolution to it and it's just a song mm-hmm. sort of it's it's you know it's it's a jazzy song it's kind of easy going but it's just a song that's born of frustration and it's it's an interesting you know uh, uh, companion piece to her earlier songs that were about you know having a happy time driving somewhere and going on adventures. And I think it, it, it's kind of an interesting subtext to this being her last, you know, studio album when she, of her musical career in that era. Yeah. I think that permeates a lot of this album. This is uncertainty, this lack of closure. I think it's a, it, it's a theme that kind of uh, spreads across a lot of these songs. I'm not sure if she recently did something. Did she, do you know? Uh, it's, it's been a little while, but she did a self cover album in the early 2010s. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Well, she wouldn't. She wouldn't do anything like this again. Like she didn't do like originals again. Uh, so it is kind of like a very, uh, you know, poignant farewell to the music industry where she starts to transition into movies. And like I said, if you are in the market for vinyl records, go on there and get these cheaper records while you can, because I guarantee you, uh, they will be worth way more in the future once people start to develop a taste. For uh, Japanese uh, music from this era, especially of such fine quality like uh, Momoko Kikuchi's. Absolutely. So, uh, with that, I want to uh, really thank you for coming on here and discussing uh, Momoko Kikuchi with me because, uh, you know, it, it's been such an amazing talk and she definitely deserves so much more attention in the West and uh, her ideas, um, her ideas deserve way more appreciation and uh, who she is as an artist deserves way more uh, respect and I believe that she will get it and, and it's, it's it's coming it's already happening yeah. as you can see uh, we're talking about her now we've talked for about almost two hours <laughs> about so I mean Momoko Chan if you're if you're listening you know we really appreciate what you're doing and please continue and uh, we do we do appreciate what you what you've done um, so with that tune in Tokyo uh, everyone I'm gonna drop the links in if you want to attend one of Greg DJ Greg Hignite's events with Tune in Tokyo and LA and Little Tokyo, please do. I want to. Hopefully, I will be able to uh, eventually. But if you're in LA or if you're in a surrounding state, pay them a visit. Uh, show some love to them. Go to one of their events. They're such great people. They play amazing music. I'm going to put all the links in the description of the podcast below. So uh, with that, I will let um, DJ Greg Hignite, do you want to say any parting words? I had a great time tonight. Uh, it's always really fun to go on a deep dive like this and focus on one artist. Uh, we learn a lot about the artist, but I think we also learn a lot about the broader musical world that they're in because it gives us all a greater context. And as I was preparing for this, I feel like I, I learned, and I'm sure you did too, things about her that I never knew. And I was like, wow, this is, this is, this is so neat. I want to talk about this. And, and, and uh, so it was nice unspooling all of that with you tonight and getting to talk about Tune in Tokyo and kind of why I love all of this music. Mm-hmm. I, well, I can't thank you enough. And I think it's so important, the work that you're doing, the work that you will do, 
Uh, believe me, it is appreciated. People do notice, and uh, you know we're with you, and more people will come soon. You know, we're 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 definitely on the uh, you know on the edge of something that's that's way bigger than we that than we can see right now. It's it's definitely going to continue to grow from here on, and I'm so excited about that, and I'm so happy to be able to share that with you. It makes a difference in the end, and I can't thank you enough. And uh, thank you for everyone who's been listening. And uh, again, this has been Mayonaka Hour. Uh, and one more thing before I go: uh, October sixteenth, uh, we are having our three-year anniversary of City Pop Night at Murasaki Sake Lounge. Uh, and the uh, the singer who does our end theme, uh, Mika Bridgebook, she does the end theme called Mirai, which I'm gonna play right after we're done here. She's gonna be flying in from Tokyo. To perform City Pop covers uh, at Murasaki Sake Lounge in Chicago. If you want more information, if you want to attend, I'm going to have some links in the description. Please stop by. We would love to see you. So with that, uh, Greg, DJ Greg Ignite, thank you so much again uh, for everything you've done. And um, I'm definitely going to be able to uh, talk to you again hopefully soon. So thank you so much. And uh, everyone, have a great night and uh, take care.